It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thanks for coming in, Mr. Mahoney. Do you have your member ID card? Yep, I have it right here in the FEP Blue app. See? Great. It's awesome. The app can also help me find a provider and keep tabs on my deductibles. Okay, can I... Oh, yeah, and my out-of-pocket spending and visit limits, and I can call the nurse line. I'm really glad it does all that, but I only need to see your member ID card. Oh, that's it? Why didn't you say so? Fearless is just one tap away. With the new FEP Blue app from Blue Cross and Blue Shield, you can access your health benefits on the go. Download it now at fepblue.org slash app. Locked on Vikings on a Tuesday. Good morning. I'm Sam Ekstrom. What an opening weekend of the NFL season. And it's made all the better for the fan base that the Minnesota Vikings are 1-0. And they get to at least look ahead to this matchup against Green Bay with a lot of optimism. Starting 1-0 is about as good as it gets. Whether you're the Cleveland Browns or the New England Patriots, starting 1-0 gets your season off on the right foot and can become the foundation of something great. I think of 2012, when the Vikings won that kind of ugly overtime game against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Vikings were not supposed to do anything in 2012, but a big win in week one got them off on the right foot. They won 10 games. So don't underestimate the importance of winning your very first game. Vikings Packers, Sunday night football, Got to hear a lot of Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth raving about it on the Sunday Night Football broadcast two days ago. They're excited to get there. I'm excited to get there. It feels like it's being christened all over again. We've toured it. We've had preseason games there. We've had live practices there. But this feels like the real deal, the real maiden voyage. Everything else is just a simulation. This is the real thing. Biggest concern heading into this game is Blair Walsh. We talked about it at length on Monday with Sage Rosenfels. We threw some opinions out there. I wanted to continue that conversation today. Blair Walsh misses three kicks against Tennessee. First time he's missed three kicks since 2014. Only the second time it's happened in his career. Two field goals and an extra point. If the public had their way, there would be competition in right now for Blair Walsh. A lot of people fed up with the Vikings kicker. And I guess there's enough reason to justify that. He cost them a playoff win. He's been inconsistent now for the better part of two seasons. He seems to be in his own head, frankly. When you miss a kick of that magnitude like he did last year, it's hard not to be in your own head because you know that there's no more slack. There's absolutely no more slack. Even if you kick 85%, people will want you to be better because there's constant seeking of atonement. If you can't prove yourself to be better than that, then the fans are going to want to change. They're very fickle. There's a lot of fickleness, especially with special teams. Now, let me pump the brakes as I did on Monday once again. If you'd want to move on from Blair Walsh, great. More power to you, Rick Spielman. But what is your plan? What is your replacement If you get rid of Blair Walsh, you need to bring in somebody else. Who are you going to bring in? Kyle Brinza? Corey Acosta? Tom Obarski? Marshall Morgan? 
I may as well be reading off, like, the jury at the local courthouse. You've got a list of unrecognizable names on the free agent market and one name that probably intrigues some people, Robbie Gold. Robbie Gold, the former Chicago kicker who was recently released, is the only name that might compel you to make a move. Robbie Gold was a steady, long-time kicker in this league. That's the only option you have if you want to make a switch. So do you want Robbie Gold? Do a quick search on Pro Football Reference. If you look at the combined totals of all kicks from 2012 until now, Blair Walsh is the 15th best in the NFL. 84.5% on field goals. He's made 125 and missed 23. One spot above him is Robbie Gold. 89 makes, 16 misses on field goals, 98% on extra points. The former Bear, who Vikings fans ridiculed for years. That's the only option. Yeah, there's Josh Scobie. He's still out there, the former Jaguar, the former Steeler. Just look at Josh Scobie's season by season, though. The guy's had, like, two good years. So, unless you're going to get gold, then you're, you're stuck with Blair Walsh. And, obviously, the upside to Blair Walsh is far greater than the upside to Robbie Gold. Robbie Gold is 34 years old. Blair Walsh is 26. There's plenty of good years left in that Blair Walsh leg. So, the question is, why is Blair Walsh struggling? Seems like something happened to him the second they moved that extra point line back. But it's not like he's the only one. The New York Jets kicker missed an extra point on Sunday. The New York Jets lost the game by one. The Detroit Lions kicker, Matt Prater, who's got an NFL record for field goal length, he missed an extra point yesterday. That very nearly cost them that game. They went down by a point late, and then Prater saved them for the last second field goal. The Seattle Seahawks kicker missed an extra point in the final minute of the fourth quarter on Sunday. That could have cost them the game. It put them up by two instead of three. So you see where I'm getting at here. Blair Walsh is not the only one struggling with the extra point. I think we, we, we need to be concerned, though, about the accumulative effect of missing too many kicks in general. Will it get in his head to the point where there are just certain actions that he keeps repeating? For instance, pulling the football. He seemed to have a very bad pull habit on Sunday. He pulled the 56-yarder. He pulled the 37-yarder. He even pulled the warm-up kick, quote-unquote, 56-yarder that he had after Tennessee called that timeout. So there's something in the motion of Blair Walsh. Or perhaps there's something else. Perhaps there's something in the pipeline that is leading to his mishaps. There's more to kicking than just the swing of the leg. That's probably 70% of it. 15% is the snap. 15% is the hold. But they can derail a kick quickly if they're not done properly. They have a new long snapper than they used to have when Blair Walsh was a pro bowler, when Blair Walsh was a rookie stud in 2012. His team was Colin Leffler and Chris Cluey. 
as a rookie. Now it's Kevin McDermott and Jeff Locke. He goes from having two veterans on his team to two young guys on his team. Not trying to displace the blame too much, but as you saw during the playoff game last year with the laces and everything, there are definitely parts of the process that can affect a kicker. If the kicker doesn't trust the process, that can affect him mentally. Now, I will say that throughout training camp and post-training camp, I have seen Adam Thielen taking a number of snaps during field goal drills. That tells me that there's perhaps a seed of doubt that Jeff Locke is not holding adequately. And off of that playoff game, I don't blame the team for having another option. Not only does Adam Thielen give you some competition for Locke, but he's a guy that could actually make something happen with a bad snap. He could get up and run with the football. Remember, they used him in that fake punt situation week 17 last year. So maybe there's some doubt with Jeff Locke's holding ability. Just a thought. Hasn't been confirmed, hasn't been discussed by the coaches. But here's where you're at with Blair Walsh. If you really want to move on from Blair Walsh, here's what you're moving on from. You just extended this guy. You signed him to a four-year deal last year. And there's money on the books. It's not a ton of money, but Blair Walsh is guaranteed $3.75 million. And he's guaranteed over half a million dollars in signing bonus money for the next four years. So obviously you can cut bait. You can probably afford it if you cut bait, but it's a bad look when you sign guys to a four-year extension. And then literally after one game, talk about cutting them. What kind of faith does that give future players to sign long-term extensions with your team if you're just going to cut bait. And I worry about the same thing with Jarius Wright. Jarius Wright just signed a four-year extension, and he was a healthy scratch on Sunday. He and Walsh have very similar contracts. So if you're the Vikings, wouldn't you rather try to wait out this storm? Blair Walsh has still been an upper echelon kicker many times in his career. This is a serious bump in the road. It is only one game. Let's see if it becomes a pattern. In an earlier episode, I think it was the first week of Lockdown Vikings, I rattled off the difficulty of other kickers in the past to bounce back from crippling misses in the playoffs. Thought Blair Walsh was going to be the guy to do it. He still could be. Let's see how he does indoors at U.S. Bank Stadium, where he's been expected to be much, much better. Walsh did have a big day of fantasy football on Sunday, however. 14 fantasy points, despite missing three kicks. Hopefully you had him in FanDuel. Fantasy football for everyday fans. New contests starting every week. No busted seasons. Just pick a contest, choose your team, and watch the score in real time. Lots of contest options. Beginners contests. Head-to-head contests with friends. 50-50 contests where the top half win cash and large tournaments with up to $2 million purses and two hundred grand for the winner. I had Melvin Gordon on my bench on Sunday. Wish I would have started him, and hopefully you had him in your daily fantasy league. Gordon was a great option for San Diego in their tough loss. Get all that fantasy football has to offer with FanDuel. Be sports rich. And listen closely. If you try FanDuel now, you can get up to $50 in free entries. 
New users who deposit will get five free entries to NFL 50-50 beginner contests, valued at up to $50. You'll get one free entry a week for five weeks. Value of free entries varies based on deposited amount. Go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button, and use my promo code, LOVIKINGS. FanDuel.com, promo code LOVIKINGS. Voidware prohibited. Is democracy in danger or decline? Condoleezza Rice, William Galston, and Carlos Gutierrez and others take on this question in the fall edition of The Catalyst, a journal of ideas from the Bush Institute. Surveys show Americans place less trust in institutions like the media and business. Others contend America has faced far more challenging periods and emerged strong. Leading policymakers, Bush Institute experts, and respected journalists take on this debate. Read about it at bushcenter.org slash Arif Hassan joins us here on Locked On Vikings. Arif is a local Vikings writer for Cold Omaha and 1500 ESPN. He is elite in many regards, and not the least of which is film. And he's already broken down the film of Sunday's game against the Tennessee Titans. Arif, good morning. Uh, hey, how are you doing? Hey, doing well, doing well. Uh, I I leave the film work to you because that's your forte. What stood out to you most? The rewatch was really important because, you know, when you take a look at how individual offensive linemen performed, you always want to get like sort of a more granular take on how individual players performed when you rewatch. And it really felt like uh, all of the praise or maybe not praise, but credit the offensive line got for being a little bit better in pass protection uh, last night was maybe a little bit uh, misplaced. I thought the offensive line actually did a pretty poor job on that rewatch, keeping pressure off of Sean Hill. And we know he got hit, you know, a couple of times, but really the amount of times he was pressured and was able to get away from it with a quick, decisive action, you know, I think is very notable. Andre Smith did a poor job. I thought Matt Lill, you know, he did uh, about as poor a job as, as you'd expect. You know, I thought even Alex Boone had a poor game. Uh, you know, last night we mentioned that Joe Berger had a pretty good game. That did hold up. He, he, uh, he continued to... Uh, to play pretty well, but I thought that the offensive line gave up a little bit more pressure than than uh, sort of our initial impression. Interesting, and and that's one area where I suppose the the ends sort of justify the means. I mean, they didn't get sacked ultimately, but I'm sure that when Mike Zimmer and Tony Sperano and the offensive staff watches that back, that's going to be one area where they're probably uh, very upset about because that's why they brought in a new offensive line coach, so they don't don't allow so much pressure which is an even bigger credit than Deshaun Hill because I thought he sensed the pocket really well. I was impressed at how he would always step up in the pocket if somebody was turning the corner. He moved around well, kind of in that little uh, that little cocoon that he's in. And he because he's not agile, he doesn't really have the temptation to bail too early. He's stuck in there. He was courageous in the pocket. I don't know if we're going to see much more of Sean Hill this season, but he left a pretty good impression that at least gives me the the faith that he can come in in a pinch if he's needed down the road and be a, a viable option. I think uh, I think that's true that this is you know sort of increases our, our credit for Sean Hill and and I think that his willingness to sort of stick in the pocket and he knows his limitations. I mean we did see him you know attempt to run for a third down conversion and that didn't work out too well. But generally speaking, he knows his limitations and maybe the fact that we don't see him sort of fleeing the pocket is one reason that. We're not immediately picking up on the fact that he's dealing with a lot of moving bodies around him. Uh, and I, I think that this is maybe a little bit more evidence that Sean Hill has the ability to, to, to hold the team down. And, you know, I think more importantly, uh, not just, you know, play in spot situations, 
but sort of keep the team running while Sam Bradford learns more of the playbook because there's a lot of elements to learning a playbook uh, that, you know, if you only know some of, can be even more dangerous than knowing nothing at all. And so uh, making sure that Bradford has that playbook down, now the Vikings have maybe a little bit more time uh, because of the cushion that Sean Hill gave them. Do you have a particular leaning as to who you'd like to see start on Sunday? You know, I thought about this a lot last night, especially as I was watching more of, of Hill play, and I think I would rather have uh, Hill play. Uh, and I think that, you know, honestly, you know, Bradford is a better quarterback. He has more of a chance to create opportunities and create offense. And I think that the reason the Vikings brought Bradford in is because he's more than a game manager that he can create. Uh, but it is so important that you have all parts of the playbook down uh, before you get out there because it's not about knowing the number of plays. It's about knowing on a specific play what every person's assignment is in response to all the different coverages. There's a lot of playbooks out there where one receiver will have six different routes they run based on the coverage that they have. And if Bradford has the wrong understanding of which route that receiver is going to run, it usually results in an interception. We see miscommunication lead to turnovers all the time in the NFL, and this is one of the reasons why you need to have a good understanding of the playbook. I don't know sort of how far Bradford is. If he's far enough, then fine, start him and make sense. Green Bay is a big opponent. It's an important game. Uh, but because the risk of playing a person who just doesn't know all of the assignments for all of the players in the field at all times, it's a, it's a big demand, uh, I would be okay with Hill, especially given his performance last night. It actually worked out pretty well that they played Hill because I think if Bradford had played, it would have been a, a huge reliance on the run game and, and some very vanilla passing. But the run game was shut down so much on Sunday that Hill was forced to really take charge in that second half and, and air it out, which I'm not sure Bradford would have had the capability to do, which brings us to, to the other question, why was the run game so ineffective? You, you've talked about how the pass protection may not have been as good as we thought. Uh, was the run blocking about as brutal as it looked? Uh, yeah, no, definitely. I think that uh, there were a lot of issues uh, creating lanes for Peterson, uh, McKinnon, Aziata. And, uh, and and that was, you know, one of the reasons that the Vikings brought in Alex Mooney has this attitude. He has the ability to create a lot of holes. Uh, and unfortunately, it was maybe sort of his biggest weakness in the game. You know, the Vikings tried running left a lot. You know, Khalil has been shown to be a better run blocker over the past couple of years uh, than, a, than a pass protector, despite his college resume. Uh, running to the left made a lot of sense, and it wasn't very successful. Uh, and there wasn't really a lot to make out of, you know, what the, what the Vikings did. There were occasions where they blocked you know, seven-yard play, a five-yard play, a nine-yard play. But for the most part, uh, there were a lot of failures to the line of scrimmage from the offensive line. I was really surprised we didn't see more Jarek McKinnon because I thought he would be a terrific bailout option for quarterback du jour out of, out of the backfield. You know, with McKinnon going into the flat, he's a great check-down option because he's so shifty and elusive, but they really didn't use McKinnon at all. Heavy dose of Peterson – and when it wasn't working with Peterson, they still didn't go to McKinnon. And maybe it's because he had a lingering issue uh, injury-wise this week, and maybe he wasn't 100%. Peterson just wasn't working out, but they didn't really try to change much when it wasn't. Yeah, I'm really curious about that. I think that the, the, the ability to install the game plan might be uh, stifled a little bit by alternating reps between, between Bradford and Hill, which might actually be a reason. I hadn't thought of the, about this until just now might be a reason you want to get Bradford out there as quickly as possible so that you have a consistent number of reps of the ones. You can install more plays into the game plan instead of having you know fewer, simpler plays. Uh, but I think that this injury concern is, is actually a really important point. I believe he didn't practice 
on Friday, and he was limited on Wednesday, which means he didn't get a bunch of practice during the week, so it made sense to keep him on a pitch count. Uh, and that beyond that, you know, the Titans are not the most important opponent for the Vikings, and that has less to do with their relative talent level. Sure, you know, the Vikings were favored to win despite not having the quarterback and being on the road, but a lot of it has to do with the fact, you know, they're an AFC opponent, you know, they're an out-of-conference, not even a divisional opponent. And so winning those games matters less than winning, you know, conference games, which matters for tiebreakers, and then also, of course, winning divisional games, which matters for tiebreakers more than anything else. And so I imagine uh, that, you know, you game plan, you know, some of the stuff that you can only use one or two times, some of the more exotic looks, you know. Uh, you game plan that a little bit less in those less important games, especially early in the season, uh, and save those either for a stretch or for, you know, tougher divisional games where you try to bring out stuff that the opponents who, who are, have become familiar with you haven't seen before. Yeah, that's exactly what I ran by Sage Rosenfels yesterday, is that it could be that the Vikings want to unleash the offense in full with Green Bay, with Sam Bradford perhaps, and Jerick McKinnon, where the offense, I think, is more dynamic. And you brought up the importance of division games. There was a video from the locker room yesterday with Mike Zimmer talking to the team, and I think somebody piped in, it might have been Brian Robison at the end, who said, next week counts for two meaning the Green Bay game counts double because not only is it a divisional game, but against a team that you're probably going to be, be competing with every step of the way. Now, from a running back standpoint, back on Peterson, I, I think we need to realize or at least admit that the number of dysfunctional games from Adrian Peterson has steadily been climbing over the past year and change now. It seems like he's becoming more as as feast or famine as he's ever been with a lot of negative plays, a lot of plays three yards or less. Now, some of this is obviously the offensive line, but to a certain extent with Adrian Peterson, you need him to overcome these difficulties. And if he can't, he's not worth the substantial contract that you're paying him. Yeah, when you pay a running back $11 million, $18 million next year will be his cap hit. Uh, when you pay any running back over $5 million uh, in the current cap environment, you're demanding of them and expecting of them to be able to create where many other running backs cannot. Like That's the reason that they you know, provide so much more additional value for your team especially in a league where, you know, maybe running isn't as important or doesn't provide, you know, as much avenues to winning as passing does. And because of that, there's just an even higher demand on running backs to create in situations where some other running backs don't have that ability. Uh, and one of the areas that Peterson is so good at creating is powering through tackles, creating yards after contact, and making sure that, you know, he, even if he turns a seven-yard loss into a five-yard loss, he's, you know, he's helped the team. If he turns a three-yard loss into a one-yard gain, that's something that he's done pretty consistently throughout his career. Uh, so even when there's bad run blocking, there are ways that you can help the team that maybe don't show up in the stat sheet. But that wasn't true for Peterson in this most recent game. And over the past seven games, he's had a lot of problems, if you include the Seattle game, 132 carries, three yards a carry, uh, 19 first downs, three touchdowns. So that's a lot of problems uh, for Peterson over the course of many opponents, over a lot of games where he hasn't been, you know, consistent enough. And for the yards after contact bit, you know, he, he used to average, you know, over two yards of contact. He's best in the league by a significant margin, more than Marshawn Lynch, more than anyone else. I don't think that surprises anyone. But in this game, he averaged half a yard after contact, the lowest he's ever averaged in any game that ESPN Stats and Info has information for going all the way back to 2009. So this is his worst game in terms of powering through tacklers and uh, and creating yards after contact. So 
definitely there's evidence of a struggle that have not very much to do with the offensive line. Oh, that's that's incredible. That's incredible. Arif Hassan with us here, Locked on Vikings. You can follow him on Twitter at Arif Hassan NFL. Now, it is, in fairness and conversation, Adrian Peterson had a carbon copy game like he had on Sunday last year, week one, against San Francisco. He went on to have two stellar games after that. He won a rushing title, and things worked out okay. So maybe there's still hope for Adrian Peterson. But uh, Sunday's game against a uh, far from a world beater in Tennessee and their defensive line and their front seven, and he could not get the job done. So looking ahead already to Green Bay, uh, do you have any early thoughts on that game? I want to say Green Bay opens as a one-point favorite. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I, you know a lot more about that than I would. If Green Bay uh, only opened as a one-point favorite, uh, I'd be pleasantly surprised. I think that you know that that home point advantage, which is actually should probably be larger than three points. You know, studies have shown that uh, teams in new stadiums have a larger home point uh, have, have a larger home field advantage for about the first two years. Uh, you know, if if on a neutral field. You know, they're four points apart. I think that speaks well to the Vikings roster overall. I think it also speaks to the struggles that Green Bay has had. Last year, Green Bay, you know, their offense wasn't amazing or anything like that. A lot of people attributed that uh, to the loss of Jordy Nelson. Uh, They looked pretty out of sorts for most of that game against Jacksonville. I didn't watch all of it, but they did sort of turn it on by the end. I am a little bit concerned. You know, the monitoring of Xavier Rhodes is going to be critical. He's a key member of the secondary. The secondary in this last game did not play that well against a much worse receiving court and just is simply not a talented uh, quarterback like Aaron Rodgers. Uh, and so unless you can get sort of an elite, you know, cornerback one and some functional work from cornerback two uh, in order to complement Harrison Smith, I think you're going to be trying to dig yourself out of a hole. And I think we can both agree that this offense as it's constructed without Teddy Bridgewater is not built to dig themselves out of a hole. So I I I would be pleasantly surprised if the Vikings uh you know were were one point dogs, I think is what you said. Uh because it implies the teams are a lot closer than they are in my head. Uh but I would I would take the Packers, you know, as much as it hurts to say that. And hey, I was wrong about the Titans too. I thought that the quarterback situation would be worse than it was, so I could be wrong here, but a little bit concerned about the secondary and a little bit concerned about, you know, sort of the type of game plan that that could create. Sunday, if the Vikings don't get two defensive touchdowns, I mean, we may not be talking about a Vikings win because the way they were digging out of that 10-point hole field goal by field goal, and it seemed like it was moving heaven and earth just to get into field goal range at some points, uh, you know, the defense really saved them. So there's going to be have to be a lot of cleanup on the offensive side of the ball, special teams and everything. And uh, I think the Vikings will have a little extra juice being at U.S. Bank Stadium, which should propel them, I, I think, towards uh, at least an inspiring defensive performance. Uh, we'll see what they can do offensively. But Arif Hassan, thanks for your contributions. I'm sure we'll talk to you again down the road. People can follow your work at Arif Hassan NFL. Uh, anything you have coming up? Uh, yeah, at, uh, at 1500, I'm going to be uh, recapping some of the more advanced statistics behind the game so we can get a better picture of what's going on. Uh, and then I'll have a discussion, maybe a little bit of a deeper discussion about Sam Bradford and Sean Hill on Cold Omaha. Awesome. Arif Hassan, have a good day. You too, man. Say Rosenfels back with us on Wednesday. It's Locked On Vikings, Locked On Podcast Network. Follow me on Twitter at Sam Ekstrom. We'll talk to you in the morning.
Is Democracy in Danger or Decline? Condoleezza Rice, William Galston, and Carlos Gutierrez and others take on this question in the fall edition of The Catalyst, a journal of ideas from the Bush Institute. Surveys show Americans place less trust in institutions like the media and business. Others contend America has faced far more challenging periods and emerged strong. Leading policymakers, Bush Institute experts, and respected journalists take on this debate. Read about it at bushcenter.org slash catalyst. Hey, sports fans. My name is Ben Beacon. I'm the host of Locked On Wolves, the Minnesota Timberwolves podcast on the Locked On NBA Network. The Wolves might be in the middle of what's turned out to be a pretty miserable season, but there's still plenty to talk about. From the aftermath of the trade deadline to looking ahead at what moves Gerson Rosas and the front office might be planning for the summer, to the possibility that all-star snub Carl Anthony Towns could go off on any given night, it's still going to be a fun spring. Tune into Locked On Wolves daily, Monday through Friday. I'm Ben Beacon with Locked On Wolves, and we'll catch you next time.